Okay. Today's reading is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. It can be found on page 934 of the Bible's next year seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we look at this. Our gracious God, we come into this place and we um, bring into we bring into this time our. Our, our emotions and our experiences of this week. Some of us are hurting in a way that, that no one could guess. Some of us are celebrating. Some of us are questioning. Some of us are even questioning, why are we here? Maybe it feels like we don't belong. Some of us are dealing with issues of whether or not we matter enough. Whether anyone likes us, whether anyone loves us whether our life is on the right path, whether we're grieving or whether we're celebrating, whether we're questioning or whether we're embracing you and convinced of your realness, we pray or we come to you from places of um, uh, all different and yet we're all the same. We're more of a mess than we care to admit. We need you. We need your grace. And it seems um, so, so infrequent that we actually understand and truly grab hold of your grace, truly admit our need for you. And even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, your story tells us that through Christ we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined, simultaneously a mess and loved gloriously, perfectly, completely and unconditionally by you. Help us to believe that that's possible and that that's true and use this time as we listen to your word to solidify your grace into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed that this sermon was 
supposed to be about leadership in some way. And so we have the question about, you know, when, when does the leader become corrupt? And because of the nature of this passage, in the end, we're not really talking about leadership today. We're talking about something much more universal in all of us. And you could apply it to leadership. But we're talking not just about leadership. We're talking about glory chasing. Glory chasing in general. Everyone does it. It's a part of all of our lives. It's a human thing. Let me give you some contemporary examples. People tell you it's the new thing to come up with your personal brand. Do you know your personal brand? Have you perfected it? Have you tapped into what it is about you that really tells a unique story? And have you figured out a way to capture that and put that out there to the world to move yourself forward? Glory chasing a little bit, maybe? A good image for our pursuit of glory is the selfie. We take a picture of ourself and then we put it out there and we hope that it, that it gets out into people's world, that we get ourselves out in front, out there a little better. We hope that more people see it and that it gets lots of likes or hits. We manicure our presentation of ourself. We edit out the flaws. Why? Well, one reason is we want to matter, don't we? We want to have substance. We want to matter to the world. A tool that can be used for this today is Periscope. You can use this app and people will show a skill or just their physical appearance or something else that they have to offer the world and see how many people represented on the bottom by a number, how many people are looking in and watching you because of that thing. How much do you matter? There's a... There's a number at the bottom of the screen that shows you how many people are paying attention to you and how much you matter. There's all kinds of ways we, we pursue glory. Student, a student in academia, students pursuing glory by needing to have their name towards the top of that list on the bulletin board when the grades come out. Needing to, be, to say really intelligent things and to be heard in the classroom. You hear that, James, every once in a while? That, that student... Or the word valedictorian, the title valedictorian, or some other title, some other honor, matters a lot to you. You might be seeking glory for some reason or another. Let me give another picture of it. A mom at home with a couple of infants in diapers and a degree, a graduate degree on the wall. maybe has to swallow her pride as she wrestles with the fact that something that the world would acknowledge very quickly and freely as mattering. Meanwhile, that's on the shelf while she does the years of thankless work, changing diapers, reading books, putting people down for naps, feeding, cleaning up, feeling, well, feeling like a lot of people feel the people in the world who feel in one way or another that in some way life is robbing them of their glory. Do you ever feel that way? Do you have enough glory? We operate, it seems, out of a glory deficit. There's a lot of glory. It seems like there's more glory deficit than there is glory plenty. How about you? Do you matter enough? Do you wish for more glory? 
Now, it's obvious, and I love the laughter when we read this text, it's obvious that James and John are seeking glory. And they're operating out of a glory deficit, just like we see so many examples in our own lives today. They want to be a big deal. And I want you to see, just like Mark wants us to all see in this text, and like Jesus wanted James and John to see, that Jesus himself has the answer to our glory deficit. That's the whole point of this. In fact, he can reinstate you with a glory that is unimaginable, that is so thoroughly sufficient that it can stop all your glory chasing. And we hear it, we learn it through this story, and the story is one, just one of the absolute coolest stories in terms of interactions with Jesus and in terms of this section of scripture that, I, that we've talked about now for several weeks, and I've referred to it as the section of interactions between Jesus and the disciples, because they continue to not get it. Jesus presents something in the very next thing. In fact, this is one, the third example. Jesus presents how he's going to the cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. And the immediate next thing is a massive whiff at getting the point. I mean, they just clueless going the other direction. So this is a fun passage. It's fun because it's filled with double meanings. It's just right. It's got all these double meanings that just happen, and Jesus grabs hold of them immediately and starts kind of leveraging them to make the point. And we can see those double meanings even better because we have kind of this bigger view of all the rest of the stories of Jesus and the New Testament. And so we can even see it more clearly. So let's look at these fascinating double meanings. In, In verse 37... This is, what, this is how they say it. The wording is very important. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In your glory. What is glory? Jesus' glory in the Gospels is different than what the disciples are thinking glory is. In fact, if you want a really clear picture of it, and this is where you might even have fun having a Bible in your hand because we're going to do a lot of flipping around. Um, a lot of it. Probably nine or ten different places will go. So if you go to John chapter 12 on page 992, maybe share with someone, or if you just like listening, that's okay too. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. So we're talking about Where is Jesus' glory? What's his glory like? Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, John 12, verse 23 and 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If you skip just ahead to verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What is Jesus' hour of glory? The Gospel of John is very creative and literary on this point. It's all about the hour in the Gospel of John. His hour of glory is when he's on the cross. His hour of glory is his suffering. Okay, so then if you flip back to... Mark chapter 15, verse 25, 26, and 27. 
here's the hour. In fact, we learn what hour it is. It says, in, so page 941, verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. It's Jesus' hour of glory. The written notice of the charge against him read, and here's more irony, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Okay. Now we go back to John 10. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. No wonder, huh? No wonder Jesus' reply is, I, I picture the hand going to the forehead, you don't know what you were asking. Well, so this naive, wildly ironic mistake set, sets them up and sets us up for a fantastic lesson in glory seeking. They are so far off the mark that they couldn't be more on target. They have no clue, but they're actually exemplifying something. Mark wants you to see that, you know, if you just take the words at face value, what these two disciples are doing is they're clamoring to share in Christ's sufferings. They can't wait, it seems. Of course, they think he's saying, are you willing to put in a little extra effort you know, to get those great spots. They think they might suffer a little bit to get earthly glory, and Jesus is teaching them and all of us through this that your suffering is your glory. There is glory in the suffering. They want to suffer in order to get glory. Jesus is promising, and the gospel promises that you can get your glory, which enables you to suffer. Let's keep fleshing that out. Something hasn't yet happened in them, so this is pure irony. They actually aren't getting it. They're ironically clamoring to suffer with Christ. But guess what? That exemplifies something that's all over the New Testament that later on they would get. Later on, Christians would get this, and it would start to sink in, and there would be a transformation where they might enter suffering willingly because they're so filled with glory. Um, Romans 8, verse 17. Let's just look at four passages that give us the view from later on that they can't even see yet. They can't see this yet, but this is where they'll be someday. Romans 8, verse 17, page 1043 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That kind of sounds like people sitting on his right and his left, doesn't it? We are co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now if you go to Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, we'll see another post, let's say post-tomb and post-ascension view from Christianity. I want to know Christ, says the writer Paul, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. See that urge, that clamoring to enter into the sufferings of Jesus? Um, 
Let's read 1 Peter 4, verse 13 on page uh, 1124. I'm sorry, 1125. This, this, This will be the last one. But rejoice... 1 Peter 4, verse 13, page 1125. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoicing to participate in Christ's sufferings. How's that possible? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. There's this mysterious interweaving of glory and suffering. There's something going on in the New Testament. Church, John and James, they hadn't figured it out yet. They, they were so far from it. But later on... After Jesus goes through his suffering and death and resurrection, there will be this new thing, this exactly literally what they were asking to do, clamoring to be at his right and his left in his hour. They say it ironically, it's enabled in the church. They're modeling the changed behavior and focus of the Christian. They're practically begging to participate in his sufferings. And they represent... This is, this is what it means for all of us. They represent, in saying these things in Mark chapter 10, they represent what is possible in every single one of our lives if God's grace is thoroughly present to us, if we've encountered God and his grace. Now, how does that happen? How does this transformation take place? How does someone change? How does James and John change? How do you and I change this dramatically? The glory story, according to the Bible, really starts in Genesis 1 and then is reaffirmed in Psalm 8. So you could look at page 4 of the Bible, or right at the bottom of page 3, and then goes into page 4, when it says, Then God said, Let us make humans, human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We were given a glorious place, almost like heirs to the throne, like like God is the king from afar is kind of how this is presented, but he needs some of his rulers to go out to this far off land and be kind of in his place, to be his image in that land. That's a lot of glory. Psalm 8 describes it this way on page 502. You have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. And then echoing some of Genesis 1. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. There's the glory. I mean, no wonder... No wonder we're driving and seeking to know we matter, to know that we have glory, because we have this internal drive that we can't shut off. We were made for glory. That's why you're running around seeking glory. That's why you compare yourself and your importance to someone else. That's why your soul cries out for a greatness that seems almost no longer accessible. And of course it is. It isn't, it isn't accessible. Unless, of course, your glory is given back to you. And so Jesus, as he's teaching James and John about glory seeking, and he can only but just hint at where this transformation will come from. 
when he's finishing up his teaching to all the disciples, and he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a, involves always an exchange. And so through Jesus, we who have broken crowns and broken glory and a glory deficit and walking around always wondering if we matter enough, we are given our glory back. There's an exchange through Jesus. It's a ransom where hungry glory seekers are given back what they are seeking. In Jesus' hour of glory, he, he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is really a cry of someone who doesn't matter. It's a cry of someone stripped of their glory. And so you say, well, why? Why, why is Jesus stripped of his glory? So that you can get your crown back. Why does he wear a crown of thorns? So that you can wear a crown of glory. There's an exchange. He's a ransom. In fact, this is so true that you can say it this way. You can say that everything of Christ's, everything of Jesus's as the Son of God, Christians believe, becomes yours when you come into faith through Jesus. Everything that is Jesus actually becomes yours because of this exchange. So that when, you know, Christians, when they enter into uh, faith, usually are baptized. So you look at Jesus' baptism. When he was baptized in the Gospels, a voice from heaven from the Father came down and presented uh, this glory of who Jesus was and said, this is my Son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Well, that's, that voice through your baptism is now yours every day of your life. You are God's child whom he loves. In you he is well pleased. There's a glory that can fill you up. You have more glory than you ever dreamed, actually. Than you ever dreamed possible. You have so much glory, and it's secure, and it's final, and it's definitive. Your glory has been settled through Jesus on the cross. Your vocation can never satisfy you if you're you're looking for your glory in it. Your kids won't be nearly as satisfying to you if you're putting your glory in them. Your marriage or your dating relationships, they're never going to be satisfying if you're trying to get your glory out of it. Your family, your plans for your life, they're never going to truly satisfy you if your glory is in those plans. But man, if you have your glory reinstated, those things can all come to life in absolutely new ways. You can both get more joy out of them and release them more freely and be less disappointed when they don't turn out because you say, well, my glory is not there. I don't have a glory deficit anymore. I'm not being recognized in this world enough. That's okay. I already have my glory settled. My, my job isn't going like I thought it should. My career, in some way, I wonder, should I feel terrible about myself? No. My glory. My glory is reinstated. It's good. It's secure. You're not in with a particular crowd. You don't get very many dates. You have issues around your health or your body. My glory's not there. It's okay. None of that contains my glory, says the Christian. There's no deficit. In fact, I'm complete. All my glory has been reinstated. I'm filled up so much that now I can give. 
Please don't read this passage in ones like them where Jesus says, you know, to lose your life and to give your life away. Please don't read that as mere instructions that you just, that's where you should put all your energy to empty yourself. Please first be filled. Please, you know, this isn't just Jesus modeling how to empty of yourself and how to sacrifice and to be selfless. This is Jesus showing you how his selflessness will serve you and feed you. Then the mystery of self-sacrifice will be removed when you are so full. And in fact, it goes like this. You, you're, you're complete and you're filled when you're reinstated by God's glory, so you can spill out glory. And instead of being the person who's trying to edge your glory forward to get more, you're about glory disbursement. And not only that, but then when you give to the level of sacrificing and serving, and as, as this talks about, to become slaves of one another. Doesn't that sound terrible? Well... As we learn, when your glory is reinstated, you actually find you're able to meet Jesus somehow mysteriously. I can't explain it, but the Christian testimony is finding even more glory in giving yourself away because you're connecting with the suffering of Jesus. There's a solidarity in the suffering that Jesus experienced that gave you back your glory, and now you're meeting him in the midst of suffering. Glory. So, Philippians, let me just end with this. Philippians 2, verse verse 6 through 9 shows us Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. May that act of Jesus be for you in a reinstatement of your glory and may you find yourself elevated with him and through him and then may you seek to elevate others above yourself in response. Let's pray for God's power to have this happen. God, we look to you because um, we are so often insecure about our glory. We are so often stingy and hoarding glory for ourselves because we're so insecure about how much there is. But really we're longing to rest from that glory chasing and to stop clamoring and agitating for the wrong thing. Help us to um, find significance through what you have done, giving it back to us. Help us to do that hardest step of all that James and John would eventually have to do, but to be admit that we can't scheme for our greatness and our glory. We need to humbly ask for it to be given to us. We need to humbly give up on the chase and just admit that we're not going to create enough glory ourselves, that we have a fundamental problem. Our glory is missing and we need you to fix us and make us right. Please, please, please help us. If not, if only just one tiny step today in getting closer to being children, your children who are heirs with you because you have brought us home. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.